The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Podcasting from Rockville, Maryland, home of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, a center of the Uniform Services University. We are the nation's academic center for education, training, and research in disaster medicine and public health. This is Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field, a monthly podcast where we meet with the disaster health experts to hear about their real-life disaster experiences. And now, here's your host and director of the National Center, Dr. Tom Kirsch. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Disaster Dialogues, Perspectives from the Field. I'm Tom Kirsch, the director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. Today we're joined by Edward Gabriel from the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you for joining us, Ed. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role. I'm Ed Gabriel. I'm the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary here at the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And my role is to be this Senior Advisor as to the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Um, my current role includes overseeing all parts of our organization, which includes our response operation components, um, our personnel and staffing, our finance shop, our policy shop, um, as well as our biological advanced research and development shop um, in each of those particular areas um, provide life-saving roles in the response to a disaster. Um, it's a terrific opportunity for me because I have an opportunity to deal with hundreds of employees both within our organization and when our organization is activated. Um, to respond to the field, thousands, potentially thousands of employees, providing hands-on patient care to people in need across the country. Great. Tell us how you got to this point in your career and what you did before this and what led you here. Terrific. Uh, my background uh, is many, many years in emergency services in New York City. Uh, rising uh, from being a basic emergency medical technician to, at one point, the assistant chief of emergency medical service for services for the fire department of New York City, for the FDNY. Um, I tried working uh, and learning a lot about organizational response as I took different jobs and the roles in the emergency services. Um, I worked in their communications division. I worked in the field. I was one of the early paramedics in the city of New York um, because it was a long, long time ago in 1979 was when I became a paramedic. Um, and as I grew through the ranks, I took additional positions as lieutenant, captain, deputy chief, um, assistant chief, a citywide chief, um, eventually rising to the number two level in the organization um, as the assistant chief in charge. Um, and I did different things within the organization, which is I ran communications, uh, worked in the communications department as what we called a tour commander, managing intake of calls. I worked as the executive officer for the head of EMS in the city of New York uh, for a period of time. I worked in the uh, medical unit um, that defised all the work around patient care management. Um, and I actually was the number two person in charge of the training academy for New York City for about eight years. So I've tried to take different roles. But as I moved a little bit further up the, the chain, um, I had the opportunity and was asked by uh, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani to be part of 
his office, the mayor's office of emergency management, and took a detail to that office as the deputy commissioner of planning and preparedness for New York City. This was about a year before 9-11. I was still a chief um, in FDNY EMS. However, as the details go, um, I was asked to take on this preparedness role for the city and had that role um, in the city of New York as the deputy commissioner until I retired in 2005. Then I had a terrific opportunity, I was recruited by the Walt Disney Corporation. <clears throat> and that uh, great, terrific, exciting job. Never thought I would work in the private sector, honestly. Um, but everyone should just follow their path. The Walt Disney Company recruited me in 2005 and asked me if I would become their global director of crisis management and business continuity. That is the company-wide role at I moved the whole family to Burbank, California, sunny Burbank, California, um, and then proceeded to develop for the company a global structure to manage crisis across the world. Um, had the opportunity to meet with leadership uh, during disasters. I worked directly with the heads of the company. Um, I went to almost every region of the world, um, building staff and developing process and having them exercise those processes. And that's not just parks and resorts. Um, that included all the parts of the business of the company. Um, as you know, Disney owns ESPN, it owns ABC News, it owns Pixar. And I had the opportunity to go across the world and meet some of the most talented people I've ever worked with. And then an opportunity came um, here to come back uh, to the federal government. I had been a local government guy for many, many years. Um, I had done seven years at the Walt Disney Corporation. I was comfortable um, sort of taking a shift back. Being inherently a government guy um, for my whole career was an opportunity not just to change the way a local company or a private sector resp responds to events, but the way to change a, the nation and how it responds to events and have impact on that. And while clearly it was a different job from the private sector and from my city job, uh, working in emergency management in New York City. Um, it was a terrific opportunity to work at the federal level and help work with our federal partners that work with states and locals to prepare the country to respond in a more efficient, better, and effective way. Um, and that's why I took, left the Walt Disney Company and came to work for ASPR. Excellent, thanks. So you grew up wanting to go into disaster work or firefighting? Well, there's a, there is a little bit of a story uh, and just, just to be clear, the, the work I did was always on the emergency medical services side. Well, it was in the fire department uh, structure towards the latter part of my career. The uh, primary work was rescue paramedicine, paramedic treatment modalities, emergency medical services. Uh, that's where my roots are. In fact, I'm still a paramedic. Um, I just recertified about a year and a half ago. Um, I won't give it up even though I probably need to clinically practice more than I do. Um, but that's not how I got into this. Uh, I got into this job by beginning as a volunteer. Um, I was a uh, kid at home in the, and, and I was a kid at home, and the response time for ambulance services back in those days was very, very slow in the city of New York. And I had the unfortunate experience of watching a relative pass away at home by not having the opportunity to have EMS come in under an hour. Um, now, I was young, 
Um, and then, just by chance, around the corner from my house, a volunteer ambulance started up. Literally started up, and I was one of the founding members of a volunteer ambulance called Bravo, Bay Ridge Ambulance Volunteer Organization. And that's where I got my roots in EMS. And I started as an EMT, and that's what got me into EMS as a paid job. Um, and I loved the job so much that I just stayed with it when I got the city job. And I, by the way, also stayed with it as a volunteer until I left the city of New York. So when I left the city of New York in 2005, I not only had a long career in um, FDNY EMS and with emergency management in the city, a high-ranking official, but I was still volunteering every week on my volunteer ambulance until 2005 as a basic old EMT paramedic. Um, so when I left the city, unfortunately, I had to leave both of those things, uh, two things I had learned to love over my career. Thanks. I know you played an important role in the 9-11 response in New York City. Can you describe a bit about that role and perhaps tell us your biggest challenges? Well, first, the answer is I was just one of the players in that role. Certainly a high-ranking city official with a lot of experience, but, you know, there were, the response to 9-11 was a group effort by a group of very, very talented first responders who I had worked with for, you know, 20, 25 years by then. Um, the, my role uh, was as the Deputy Commissioner of Emergency Management. I went to the main command post, which was located um, in Tower 1, right after the first plane hit. Um, we uh, were meeting there to decide actions to be taken. Um, I was in Tower 1 when the second plane hit Tower 2. Um, quite frankly, had no idea what the heck was going on. Um, you who were watching TV probably had more visibility than we do. We did on ground, um, but we knew another plane had hit. Um, the role, uh, the challenges are overwhelming in an environment like that. To prepare for a, uh, a t an attack like that comes down to not not forgetting your basics. And we had learned some basics from the 1993 bombing at the World Trade Center, which I was also at as the medical officer in charge of the EMS operation for Tower, Tower One. Um, and we were, um, in fact, learned some valuable lessons there. It took us a long time to evacuate people out of those buildings. And it was a concerted effort after that to, to do evacuation drills and show people how to get out. It took hours and hours and hours to get people out of Tower One in 1993. So when you think about that, you think it's such a large and significant event. How can you really ever prepare for it? When you're a city, you have no air defenses. You are not, there's something new is occurring. But in the end, when I look at it retrospectively, I realize two things. Response people, just like the people in our military, will go towards danger. That throughout those events, I saw citizens who could easily have been running away, helping response people manage patients in the streets. Um, and if you look at disasters over time, certainly in the Boston events and the other events around the United States, you'll always see regular citizens supporting um, the overall response effort. So while we think many people will run away or move away from the event, which is what we want, there are some people that just have it in them to stand side by side. Whatever their history is or background, you don't get a chance to sort of 
to to um, to sort of identify what those potentials are ahead of time. But I can give you one example. Um, after Tower Two came down, um, I was on the street at West and Vesey, which is right around the corner from Tower One, moving to to an emergency response vehicle. In fact, a giant communications vehicle that we were going to place in a position to be able to communicate from outside the buildings. And when Tower 2 came down, there were many injured people on the streets. The ambulances and the ambulance personnel began to manage a bunch of them. However, we had bus drivers pull their buses up. We had cabs. We had people grab people and put people in trucks. And the well-documented movement of people um, from the water side is just another example of people helping people. Um, and those are the kinds of things that, you know, responders gave some direction, but the extra hands were all citizens. Thank you. That was great. Can you describe the EOC on the pier, your activities, and how they were organized? Sure, I'd be glad to. So the Emergency Operations Center um, was located down at Pier 54. Um, we uh, took over that whole pier, and the pier's operation held 130 to 150 agencies, both federal, state, local, um, and regional agencies, as well as private sector agencies, and which represented about 300 um, personnel. It was a, this was a giant place. Um, and that particular location became literally the hub of response um, for the World Trade Center events. Um, during certain periods of the days, right after September 11th and then ongoing, I was the EOC director um, to, to oversee that operation. Um, and there were many, many things going on outside response agencies, search dogs, flyovers by special pieces of government technology to tell us where the fires were located, mapping, feeding, access, all of that came through the Emergency Operations Center and much, much more. Um, and that particular hub of the response also became the temporary relocation of government for the city of New York. So the mayor's office uh, was moved there for a period of time. And then whenever senior executive leadership came uh, to, to meet, they usually came directly to the fly into the end of that pier and walked through the operations center. And I'm talking president and vice president and um, chiefs of staff and so many names. Um, and it also became a place where we began to see over time stars and people just supporting the effort, coming down to say hello to the troops. So it was, we actually had a marriage, we had a wedding in there. Um, I think uh, overseen by Rudy Giuliani, um, many, many weeks, certainly not right after the event, but certainly within a couple of months after the event, they walk right down the center of the pier, a couple that had been together for years. It was good. What were some of the challenges in coordinating all the different agencies and organizations and the different levels of response? So we had uh, challenges. There's always challenges. However, we had a structure already that we had tested in the city of New York for emergency management operations. This was just a giant sort of bigger vision of that. 
you know, we were planning for 30 to 50 agencies, primarily being local and regional. We didn't expect state and federal, National Guard resources. So they, I wouldn't put them in, Doctor, I wouldn't put them in the context of challenge. I would put them in making sure that when you do your planning efforts that you have expandability. And that's what we did. We also requested um, the strategic national stockpile to be deployed uh, to us. There was nothing when we requested that asset. Uh, we requested that asset without having any known biological attack. We were just planning ahead. We had talked about it ahead of time, practiced around it, and thought it may be something to do. We had the USS Comfort, which is a large hospital ship, deployed to us in New York City. Our initial thoughts and requests were, get us the ship. We may have a lot of injuries. It may overwhelm the hospital systems. But we ended up using that ship to house and shelter first responders, to not do a lot of medical care, but do a lot of housing, because we had responders on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, National Guard in the city, um, military resources around us. So we needed places to put people. Um, the fortunate part of it was we got the comfort. The unfortunate part of it was there weren't a lot of people that survived. So tell me about some of the victories, big or small, that stand out in your mind during the first few weeks of the response. Well, I'll start with uh, community support. So the organization, and I know it's hard to get your hands around these things, but you can imagine response people, construction people, moving up and down um, West Street. And, you know, it gets tiring. You know, you're doing 12, 16 hours a day, seven days in a row, and, you know, you know after the first three or four weeks, you're not going to find anybody alive. You know that. So it's a recovery effort. It's trying to get, you know, to find the, the unfortunate people that were perished in this and try to make sure you remove the debris and put out the fires. And all of that takes a huge toll, especially on emergency services people who lost sisters and brothers, EMS people losing EMS people, fire people losing fire people, large numbers of firing EMS people, over 343. I keep a helmet in my office. That reminds me of that. The, you know, the... The fact is, none of that exists. It was a wonderful experience to see standing in the middle of the street on West Street 24 hours a day with just people with signs. Thank you, Mr. Gabriel. That was very interesting and very informative. Look forward to part two of this discussion in our next podcast. Thanks for listening to Disaster Dialogue's Perspectives from the Field. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address www.usuhs.edu forward slash ncdmph or just search for ncdmph. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ncdmph. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been an NCDMPH USU production. Join us next time for another edition of Disaster Dialogues Perspectives from the Field.